Amen. Well, two weeks ago, I bought a house. Most of you know because you showed up to help move my furniture and, more importantly, my books. Or you made meals for my family, or just wanting to look at the pastor's house, you got a free coffee and donuts out of the deal, and you got to wander around, dirtying my carpet. Nevertheless, I bought a house and I moved in. I've settled down, as they say. I have a great church, steady job, amazing wife, beautiful daughter, and now I have a house. It's all the people want and could hope for, and more. But I'm not one to sit back and look upon my laurels. I don't want to rest. I'm on to bigger and better things. What's next in the checklist of life? Where do I go from here? Where would you go? What would you do next in your life? Humanity seems to have an innate desire. Make a plan, start down a path, hope it doesn't lead to too many twists and pitfalls, and get there. People get close to graduating high school, or going to college, or graduating college, friends, acquaintances, parents, everyone asks, what are you going to next? Where's your next step? What's going to happen? Someone's being interviewed for a job, the interviewer will ask, where will you see yourself in the next five years? Family is blessed with children, the question moves to, when are you going to have another one? Humanity is all about what is next, what is coming down the path Some of us may be earlier on the path trying to get through school. Some of us may be further on the path looking for a nice green pasture to lay down in. But we are all on this path of life. And if we are all on that, we should ask how? How do we walk along this path? How do we do it? What's the best way? What's the easiest way? What's the hardest way? Who knows the shortcuts? Is everyone's path the same? How do we walk through this life under the sun? I can say with absolute confidence, I don't know. And if we are honest, that is the same answer we would give to what the next step is. I don't know. That was my daughter's first complete sentence, by the way. She strings together sounds, you can get maybe one or two words out of it. But when you ask something like, where is your water cup? Or where is this toy? She says, I don't know. It's adorable. At the same time, it's a wonderful picture of our life under the sun. We are blind, deaf, and mute in this world. The Bible describes mankind wandering around in darkness. Christ calls out to the crowd. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. Psalmists cry to God asking why their voice is not heard. Why are you far from me, Lord? We do not know what is going on. We struggle to assign meaning. We really struggle to understand altogether. As the Reformed and Presbyterian may bristle at this, but they need to hear it the most. Probably you engineers, too. You love systems. It's orderly and helpful. The confession of faith, the catechism, it's all perfectly in order. Each theological study is in its right place, and we all love it. But Ecclesiastes says... Nah, just because it's logical and clear to you doesn't mean it is true in this life under the sun. You don't know and I don't know. We are blind leading the blind. We listen and read news sources trying to explain a situation. And what do we get? Five different stories from five different witnesses all describing five different events in different ways. Who knows what's going on in this life? 
Humanity is blundering around in unknowable dark forests. No light, no signs. The path keeps swirling and swirling like Alice lost in the told you would. Or we can say two roads diverge in a, wo- in a wood and I got lost. That's how Robert Frost should have written that. This is what our preacher wants to tell us this morning. We are fools in this world. And are you ready to admit that you don't know what is going on? Chapter 8 ends by saying, We struggle so hard to find wisdom, but even the wise lack proper understanding. The world doesn't make sense. And we only need to look to the wicked and the righteous to see this truth. Verse 10 gives us the wicked person who has died. It's usually a positive of the world when a wicked person dies. It's usually a good thing. But it says they were buried. And while they were buried, they were being praised in the city. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen descriptions of a burial scene in the ancient world or have seen books or movies or anything like that. It's, it's quite an affair when someone is buried in the ancient world. There are professional mourners that are hired to stand behind the coffin. They yell and cry and do all kinds of things as the body is being carried through the city to the resting place. If the person is well-loved, they have throngs of people just gathering around the city, crying out about this one person who has died. A preacher looks out and sees this person being mourned and celebrated in this city. And he knows who this person truly is. They are wicked. It's not just a normal wickedness either. It's not some kind of wickedness that hides behind some bombastic personality. It's like, yeah, he's a little rough and kind of pushes against you. But he's really, it's okay once you get underneath. It's not some drive of a cutthroat businessman. Like, yeah, he may have stepped on a few heads along the way, but look at what he's done. No, he says the wicked person would come and go from the holy place. The church, the temple, the religious place of worship, whatever it is, they were accepting this wicked person. Not in the sense of, all sinners are welcome here, don't worry, come on in. In the sense of letting them come and go from the worship service while they were still sinning. The church associated itself with a wicked person. It placed them in high regard. The life under the sun looks like this. A wicked person celebrated by both the secular and the sacred. This is vanity. This is the struggle to find purpose. This is where we can say it all seems meaningless. A wicked person should experience dread because of their life. They should experience punishment. If they truly are walking along this path using shortcuts and leading people astray, they should feel the judgment of the world because of their wickedness. There is a need for justice. We feel it. It's innate. But no, the wicked person is celebrated. The sentence of the evil deed is not not executed speedily, as our pastor and preacher says. In this life, the wicked die at an old age, and mankind celebrates their life. The last line of verse 11 is, is really a fitting description of all of mankind. Right? Their heart is fully set to do evil. All mankind, all the children of Adam have a heart fully set to do evil. This is why we see the wicked celebrated in the streets. This is why we see the wicked mourned over in the churches. We are a wicked people in a dark wood. 
Do you agree? Maybe you think I'm painting it a little too unkindly. But how do you respond to the wicked people of this world? Are you one of the masses lining up behind the coffin of a wicked person, ready to shed tears and cry out about all their accomplishments? Makes you think about how we respond to people around us. How far can you take it? Now me, I, I like to be encouraging to people. It's a strange trait where I notice little things, like Kevin's glasses. Stood out to me right away. I don't know why. But when I see a kind act done by someone, I will gush out about how great they are to be so kind. It's so wonderful. Oh, look, look at how nice you are to let someone bef- go before you in the checkout line. You have to wait a little bit. You've inconvenienced yourself. That's so nice. You notice someone's haircut or color and you complimented on them, them on that. That's so very nice of you. Wow, look at that. That's a great thing. Am I lining up behind the coffin of a wicked person? Am I praising them for their works? Or am I encouraging them to continue to do good things? That's a tough question. It's a tough thing to think about. If you think you have a safe and easy answer, I say think about it more because it will affect you. It's a tough way to walk. Now verse 14 picks up where 11 leaves off. The righteous experience what the wicked should experience. The wicked experience what the righteous should experience. The good is treated poorly. The bad is treated positively. Those who steal and cheat and take shortcuts in life, they often get the praise and love of the crowd. But those who follow the right way, they obey the laws of the land, laws of God, they'll be crushed under the displeasure of the populace. We love success, don't we? We really do. The masses are excited to hitch their wagon to anyone moving up in the world. More money, more fame, more recognition. Doesn't matter how they began this train. Doesn't matter what they're doing along the way. As long as we get to the top, it's great. It's good. It's a wonderful thing. From my experience, and also from the words of the preacher, it seems the easiest and fastest way to the top is to lie, steal, and cheat. I haven't been in the high-powered business world much. I saw the edges of it while in Greenwich. Got to interact with men and women who shaped the finance world. Saw high-powered lawyers walk through the doors of the church, asking them how their cases went this week. I generally get a glazed look in their eye and just keep walking. I got a brief taste of what it was like, and I'll say it's morally ambiguous at best. Only the strong and flexible survive, it seems to be. But my example of line jumpers in this life isn't from the depths of Wall Street. It isn't from the workaholics of Madison Avenue. No, it's from the restaurant world. (laughs) Seems to be one of my more experienced life moments. But we want to see, if you want to see the seedy underbelly of this life under the sun, spend some time in corporate restaurant kitchens. You'll see cooks struggling to survive because of the ego of a very overdriven owner. You'll notice that the dishwasher who went by Jose last week is now going by Pedro because, well, he finally got a social security card with a name on it and he will match the name. Then you'll run into the servers, 20 and 30 year olds working long hours doing all they can to make as much money as possible. They'll lie straight to your face so that they can move further up the ladder, get a better section, make more money, maybe even just $20 more. To them, it's better. It's fine. Service industry is not an easy world to walk through. I'm sure all of you have your own stories of your own jobs, of your own lives and businesses where 
People get the edge through backstabbing rumors and general wickedness, and you wonder, how is this possible that that person has gotten that high up and no one has noticed it? But what would the world say if one of those servers or cooks or dishwashers moved up? They became a manager. Then from manager, they, they owned their own franchise. And from their own franchise, they spun off and started their own restaurant empire. They praised them for working hard. The real rags-to-riches story. We love that kind of stuff. They make movies about it. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie The Founder, which is a story of the beginning of McDonald's. You'll see how the wicked are treated as kings and the humble are stepped upon in this world. Now finally we get to the end of the chapter, verse 17. Men cannot find out the world, cannot find out that the world is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. That's what our preacher tells us. This is the bleak life under the sun. Can't figure out what's going on. We will struggle in this life. We will falter and not understand. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous die early? Why aren't the wicked brought to justice? We don't understand. It's the last line that hits me the hardest. The wise claim they know the truth. They claim they know and understand, but even they are lying to themselves. The preacher essentially limits himself in this claim. He's spoken about pursuing wisdom this entire time. We're nine chapters into Ecclesiastes. And here, the end of chapter 8, he says, I may know nothing at all. I claim wisdom, but I don't actually have it. I'm grasping at straws. Oh, what a dark world we live in. A life under the sun. We only look at our feet. We miss the beauty of heaven above us. There's got to be some optimism in here, right? There's got to be some way to turn upward. Surely there is some way to turn our eyes heavenward, break us out of this dark wood. Surely there is an answer to the wicked. Where is the north star to guide us along this wandering path? Please speak comfort to us, preacher. Please, comfort. A preacher doesn't give us comfort. He gives us advice. Wise advice to be sure, but it's not great comfort in this dark world. And as he just said, even the wise seem to be limited. But these are the three steps, he says, to walk through this unknowable life under the sun. Fear God, be joyful, and embrace your limitations. Fear God, be joyful, and embrace your limitations. These steps are difficult. They take work. And like looking at this life under the sun, we will be left frustrated. See, we have a problem. We are the ones lining up behind the coffin. We are the ones crying out and praising the wicked. We are the wicked themselves. We have a problem. And even in this advice, we find ourselves struggling. Because the advice our preacher gives us will not lead us through this dark wood. It will not perfectly guide us along the path These are only a dimly lit candle. We need a strong light. We need a torch. What we need is the wisdom of God found in Jesus Christ. He shows us the perfection of these steps as he helps us through them to find comfort. Jesus Christ leads us from this dark woods and becomes the light to guide our way. He is the sun shining brightly for us. He is the lonely, he is the one who is joining us in this lonely path. Because he's walked this path before. He brought wisdom to this life. 
As we step into these wise moments from our preacher, let's pray that the Lord guides us along our path this morning because we do have a problem. We have a problem with wickedness. If it's not found even in yourself, you can see it all around this world. There is a problem. Something needs to be fixed. So here it is. Fear God. Verses 12 and 13 give us a hopeful answer to the victory of the wicked. Our preacher tells us in the long run, the wicked will receive their judgment. Yes, it may take too long. Yes, it may be past the moments of their death. But yes, they will find their judgment. And this is where our preacher is quick to remind us the place of God in all this. God in heaven will bring true justice to this world. Without that solace, we'd be left in deep misery. To those who continually see the wicked prosper, to those who think maybe the way forward is to lie, cheat, and bribe your way to the top, our preacher says, no, don't do that. No, no, no. That's not a good thing. You may find fleeting benefit in this life, but the great judge is still to come. You've traded eternal joy with temporal joy. The ones who fear God will win out. Now what does that mean practically, to fear God? It's become a bit of a Christian phrase. Even amongst churches we like to say, we should fear God, but don't really explain what it means. It doesn't have a good working definition. So here's what I got, what it looks like to fear God. First, humility. Those who fear God are humble. They understand a portion of God, only a portion, but what they do understand, they see his power and might. It brings about a fear within them. Imagine a strict principal or a strong coach on a football team. There's an authority that comes with that role. Those who see and understand the authority that comes with that role, they fear them. Have a moment of like, okay, I'm beneath this person. They act humble. It's not a big ego that sees that authority and then needs to prove themselves by standing up to the principal or coach. You won't see that. Those who are humble understand where they are in this life. That's first, humility. Second, respect. Beyond being humble is a piece of respect that comes with fear. A person can be humble and not respect the authority. They can fear the authority because of judgment. They know that bad things will happen to them if they undermine the authority, but they don't respect the authority. If you want an example of humility without respect, look to any 8th grade or high school class. It would be real easy. They act humble enough to not get in trouble, but they are not that interested in respecting the teacher. This isn't a judgment upon any of our high school students, I promise you. I just lived through high school, and I know what it was like. They'll push the line as far as they can take it before getting into trouble. Then they'll back off and they'll not respect. See, listening, attempting to follow, caring about what is being said by that authoritative figure, that is where respect comes from. It's enough to stop talking and listen to what's being said. That is where authority is. That is where respect is found. That's the second. Second for fearing the God. Third, the fear of God looks like love. I put this one at the last because it's important. To properly fear God, you must also love him. Now, this authority figure is scary. It has great power. You understand the judgment that can come from it, but the humble yourself before them, the respect that you bring because of their power, 
The desire to follow this command brings about love. Why? Because you want to please them. Your desire to follow the command isn't out of fear of punishment. It's because you wish to make them happy. You wish to bring them glory. Love for those is such an integral part of the fear of God because you think that they know what's best for you. You think that they understand you more than you understand yourself. And that's where your fear comes. It's a moment of going, okay, I, I need to find myself in this God because I don't understand what's going on. Humility, respect, love, that is what the fear of God looks like. That, there's so much more. There's so much to be read about the fear of God. Proverbs tells us that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Now, it's been a long time. Do you feel intimidated yet? <laughs> Probably should. I do. This is tough. Preacher's trying to guide us through this dark wood, and we're falling woefully short. I don't, maybe I feel humble, but I don't feel respectful. Maybe I feel love, but I don't feel humble. What is it? We may find ourselves more in common with the wicked in the box or the mourners behind the wicked than those who fear God. It seems to be a place that we stand. But this is where our answer for the wickedness problem steps in. I said it was Christ, right? What better qualities could you think of to describe Jesus than humble, respectful, and loving? What better way? Our Savior, the Son of God, he humbled himself in coming to earth and subjecting himself to death on a cross. He respected the wishes of his Father by sacrificing himself for the church. While in the garden, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And then he loved us and the Father by dying on the cross. Jesus Christ shows us the fear of God. And then he gives it to us. This is the wisdom of God, that we place our faith in Jesus and find out what it means to truly fear God. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it practically looks like a humble child coming for a strong father. It looks like a prayer when your day has gone to complete and utter disarray. Because that's the only person you can call out to. It looks like tears and a broken heart when you feel that sin has grabbed a hold of you. It looks like joy and thanksgiving to God when your day has gone so well you didn't even know it was possible. It's the first person you want to come to and tell about it. It's a characteristic that says, I cannot run from God. I can only run to God. No matter how bad things are, no matter how good things are, it is God who I need to run to. This is what Jesus Christ offers us. To guide us through this dark wood as a light shining forward for us. Fear God and find comfort in this unknowable life under the sun. It's the first piece of advice our preacher gives us. Second, be joyful. Now, to be joyful sounds easy, right? <laughs> we just went through a really tough time. Joyfulness just comes out of us, right? It's easy to find joy in this life under the sun. All that's been said, all the wicked prospering, the righteous being pushed down, it's easy to find joy. Verse 15 tells us, eat, drink, and be joyful. 
This is the balm in the unknowable life under the sun. And even Nietzsche will jump on this, this horse. He says, all joy wills eternity. It wills deep, deep eternity. The joy we find in this life points us heavenward in this dark world. When you find joy, you're able to look up. So find joy in the gifts of this world because they are from God. Do you enjoy a glass of wine with dinner? By all means, find joy in it. God has given us grapes and he's blessed us with cheer. You enjoy running? Do you love feeling the wind in your hair and the wind burning your lungs? Run to your heart's content. God has given us bodies to work and grow. He blesses us with the ability to run. Take joy in your run. Take comfort in knowing that God wants you to be joyful and that is why he gave you legs to run. How about singing? You love to sing? Do you love to dance? Go and sing and dance. Who cares if people see or hear you? The Lord has given you a voice to sing and a body to shake. But again, we may find ourselves inadequate to meet this joyful request, this joyful standard. You may say, I am not of that disposition. I'm not really a joyful guy. I like Ecclesiastes. Or you may say, food and drink are fleeting. How will they give me joy in this life? Well, this is where we need to turn to Jesus Christ because, again, he is that answer. It's through him that we not only gain the benefit of fearing God, but he gives us a lasting joy, a way to find greater joy in the gifts of God. Through Jesus Christ, we can partake of a great joy. You can be served bread and cup every week to eat and drink and be merry through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. One will do later this service. Even beyond that, Jesus Christ has set us free from the law of God. He has given us a spirit of freedom to enjoy the fruit of this earth. We're not bound by dietary restrictions or civil codes. We are free to enjoy this earth that God has given us. As James says, every good and perfect gift comes down from our Heavenly Father. The gifts of God are plenty. It is to our benefit and our balm to partake in these great gifts. Let them bring a smile to your face. Last week, when I was on a tirade about politics and foolish leaders and all that kind of stuff, verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us, the wise will have their face shine. It will change from hardness to shining. God brings us joy in this life. He gives us so much. It is so good to smile. It's good to say you enjoy things. You don't have to be a brooding teenager that hates everything. That was me. I was a brooding teenager that hates everything. Laugh, smile. It will remind you of the goodness of God. See, I I cannot wait for spring. I cannot wait to start our prayer walks again, to be able to walk around the city, to enjoy the weather. I can't wait to meet new people. What I really can't wait for is to sit on a patio and enjoy a cup of iced coffee. Because iced coffee is the ambrosia of this world. To the knowledge that God has given us these gifts and set us free to partake of these gifts, though through the greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ, should bring us more joy than we know what to do with. In Christ, you will be reminded that it is God who brought you the wheat out of the ground to make your favorite bread. It is God who enlightened the mind of your favorite musician to make beautiful music. 
What a joyful way to view this world. God has set it all up for us to enjoy. And in Christ, we gain a deeper appreciation of the joys in this life. And with each joy we'll find, more joy will follow as we are opened up to it. Final one. This one's brief. I promise, because we talked about it previously. Embrace your limitations. It's a point I made a few weeks ago, but it deserves just another moment of our attention. Now, without understanding and embracing our limitations, we will find ourselves chasing, chasing, chasing that wind. We will seek to know and understand this life under the sun. We will even go so far as to convince ourselves that we have figured it all out. But we have not. We cannot. We may see all that is around us. We may see the work of man in this life. We may see the back kitchen of a seedy restaurant. But we will not understand why. We will not understand how it all comes together. We will be limited Because we are wicked, we are fallen, it is in our limitations that we have to find some answer and we have to look up. Only God knows his work. Only God knows how and why and to what end. Again, my example, drive us back to the cross. That's where I always go. It is the cross that Jesus Christ showed the wisdom of God. It is in the manger that Jesus Christ showed us the wisdom of God. No one would have planned a savior through an unwed mother. No one would have expected God to come to earth. No one would have planned God to die on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. But that is what happened. Man is foolish. He seeks out the answers but never fully grasps them. God is beyond us all and his ways are so much higher, so much deeper, and so much more beautiful than ours. You have nothing else but then to turn towards him in this life under the sun. We must embrace our limitations. We must pursue wisdom just so that we can know that we won't know everything and we won't grasp everything. It's only by God that we can know anything because God is in control. And in his control, he has given us a way to find understanding and to find joy, and to find peace in this unknowable life under the sun. It's through his son, Jesus Christ. Because only in Jesus Christ can we gain fear of God. Only in Jesus Christ can we find true joy in the gifts of God. And only by Jesus Christ can we embrace our limitations and see God at work in our lives. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and find a way through this dark wood, this unknowable life under the sun. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is by your good grace that we are able to come before you. It is by your Son that we are able to understand your word. Take this word and help us to go out into this unknowable life with joy. For this all in Jesus' name, amen.